Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast discussion current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the news from China in just a few minutes a day through our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or straight from the tap at our website. Jeremy Goldcorn and his crack team sift through and curate news from 300 and more sources so you don't have to. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I am in Washington, D.C. to talk to someone who's long topped my wish list of guests, someone I've long admired, not just for his wisdom, but for his wit, too. I'll introduce him in just a moment. But on the line with me is a man of a tad less wisdom and wit, Jeremy Goldcorn, SupChina's editor-in-chief, who joins us from Fiji, where he's on holiday. Jeremy, greet the people, won't you? Good morning. Well, good morning for me, Kaiser. Uh, delight to be with you again, even though I have to confess this uh, phone connection is not the best. So you'll have to forgive me if I ask you to repeat the odd uh, question. Uh, I, I fully understand. Fiji and telecoms will hold us in good stead. Our guest today is Ambassador Chaz Freeman Jr., who for our listeners probably requires no introduction at all. But just in case, Ambassador Freeman is someone with a long and storied career in diplomacy, a fluent, and I mean seriously fluent, Mandarin speaker. He was the chief interpreter for the world-changing Nixon visit to China in 1972. He was director of Chinese affairs at the State Department from 79, when we normalized relations, to 81. And he was chargé d'affaires at the U.S. Embassy in China from 81 to 1984. Ambassador Freeman was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs from 1993 to 94. He also served as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and it was during his tenure there that Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1991, prompting Desert Storm. Some of you might also recall that he was nominated to head the National Intelligence Council during the first Obama administration, but ran into ferocious opposition because of his willingness as head of the Middle East Peace Council to publish the work on the Israel lobby of Mearsheimer and Walt, uh, ironically demonstrating that the Israel lobby was indeed powerful. <laughs> uh, huh. He was forced to take himself out of consideration. Ambassador Freeman is currently a senior fellow at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He is the author of many books on diplomacy, on the American experience in the Middle East, and of course, on China. And we're here, of course, to talk about China, a topic on which Ambassador Freeman speaks often and forcefully. And by my lights, there is no one today in public life who more embodies my ideal of informed empathy uh, when it comes to China, then Ambassador Chaz Freeman Jr. So it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to Seneca. And thank you so much for welcoming me into your home. It's my pleasure. And uh, thank you for the fulsome introduction. 
Ambassador Freeman, or if I may, Chaz. Please. Ordinarily with our guests, uh, thank you, we zero in on, on one particular topic, uh, but in view of the extraordinary sweep of your experience, both across time and across geography, we'd like to take this opportunity to sound you out on the really big picture topics related to China um, and take our time and record a two-part interview. So thank you very much, first off, for being so generous with your time. Happy to do it. So I want to start with the, the present and with the bilateral relationship in more recent times. And then for our second hour to delve into your early involvement with things Chinese uh, as a young scholar and diplomat, especially your time in Taiwan, learning the Chinese language and, of course, being tapped to interpret for the Nixon visit in 72 and your subsequent role shaping the relationship at the embassy uh, and in the State Department. So let's start with the issue that I think is maybe top of mind for you and certainly for me, the frankly quite worrying American response to China's rise. Uh, your speech to the National War College in February this year described an American strategy deficit in dealing with China's rise. Uh, can you explain for our listeners what you mean by a strategy deficit and what it is now that we have in place of a, a, a proper strategy to determine our behavior vis-a-vis -vis China? A strategy is a clear statement of objectives. Uh, that is used to marshal all of the different resources at the command of the state. Now, that means uh, military, economic, political, diplomatic, informational, all of those elements of policy. Uh, there is no such uh, clear objective, uh, nor is there any effective coordination between the different elements of American state power. I think historically... There have been great discontinuities in the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, we've had uh, a tremendous uh, development of economic interdependency. Uh, politically, for a long time, we have managed to get along despite fundamental philosophical differences. Culturally, we're compatible, although very different. Uh, we interest each other. Uh, militarily, however, we've had a very bad relationship with the exception of the 1980s uh, when the United States and China cooperated uh, on multiple fronts. Uh, the U.S. Uh, helping to modernize the People's Liberation Army, uh, cooperating in Afghanistan against the Soviet occupation, uh, and the Chinese even helping us to understand Soviet doctrine and equipment and prepare to deal with it should that occasion arise. So what do we have then in place of just ad hoc measures? We, we don't have coordination. It's simply absent. Well, what is unfortunate is that uh, the discontinuity has disappeared. On every front now, we have an essentially hostile relationship with China. Politically, we're at odds because perhaps the United States is not ready to accept a world in which we are no longer undisputably number one. Uh, economically, the interdependence has turned into a trade war, uh, which the United States instigated and which seems very poorly focused. The Chinese cannot figure out exactly what the U.S. wants, uh, and the U.S. does not seem to have an effective negotiating strategy um, in the economic area. And uh, militarily, the United States and China are now each other's enemies of choice and preparing for war, which is not to say that anyone wants war, uh, but each of us regards the other with grave suspicion and a measure of hostility. 
Chaz, is this strategy deficit particular to the Trump administration? Um, I suspect it's not because I've often heard the complaint that the Obama administration didn't really have a coherent China strategy either. And that distracted as it was by the war on terror, neither did the Bush 43 administration. I think after the end of the Cold War, uh, the United States has been somewhat adrift. Uh, I can offer uh, several explanations for this. One is that during the Cold War, thanks to George Kennan, we had an effective strategy called containment. And we were able to relate events everywhere in the world to the objective of uh, confining our Soviet rival until the defects of its system brought it down, which eventually they did. In the course of the 43 or so years that we followed the policy of containment, that strategy, that grand strategy, we seem to have lost the capacity to think strategically. So after the end of the Cold War, we regarded foreign affairs generally as a discretionary activity that you could engage in or not, as you chose. And in this context, uh, various ideological agendas uh, came to the fore. We became quite strident about human rights wherever we felt we could get away with it. We became concerned as time went on that we were losing our primacy in Asia to the Chinese. We did not come up with a new objective to replace the one we had followed uh, over years, namely integrating China into the global system. And uh, we began to engage in ad hocery across the board. So uh, the U.S.-China relationship was not in my view, in great shape when Mr. Trump came to office. He, of course, is Captain Havoc himself <laughs> and has uh, brought things. He's accelerated the deterioration in the U.S. position internationally, including with China. You've been critical about the notion of the pivot, uh, as it was called. It's been rebranded as the rebalancing or whatever. But uh, this doesn't rise to strategy, certainly not the grand strategy. I mean, it's it's regionally focused. This was, of course, born during the Obama administration. And, and in fact, we recently talked to one of its principal authors. But aside from the fact that it was seen by everyone who mattered in China as just a form of containment, what was fundamentally wrong with that idea? I think there were several things wrong with it. First, uh, the Chinese challenge is principally economic, not military. Um, we're not, we're in China's face. They're not in ours. Since 1835, a long time, time when Andrew Jackson was president, uh, we have had uh, military forces in and around China. And we're not prepared to alter that habit, even when the Chinese have re-risen to a position where they can manage their own periphery probably as well or better than we. Uh, so, the first problem was that it was a military response uh, to an essentially economic challenge. The second was that there were no resources of significance attached to it. Uh, to say that 60% of the U.S. naval forces uh, would be devoted to Asia in a time of declining U.S. naval forces was basically to say something about U.S. priorities, but not anything about effective means of implementing those uh, priorities. And finally, as you said, the signal that was sent to the Chinese was one of hostility to China's modernization and uh, 
recovery as a great power, uh, that is not helpful. So I thought the whole thing was aimed in the wrong direction, too military, unresourced, and sent the wrong signal. Uh, Kurt Campbell would, would say that he never intended it as a primarily military uh, initiative, that it was supposed to be primarily economic. It was about uh, re-engagement in the economy of East Asia. I don't think that's correct, actually. And certainly after the collapse of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, um, it's ridiculous. And what about China? Does China have something rising to grand strategy? And, and if so, how would one articulate it? I mean, I find myself thinking about this a lot. Uh, and, and, and people who uh, talk about it with me either downplay it too much. And they, they say, you know, creating a a moderately well-off society, ending rural poverty, maybe dominating the waters out to the first island chain. Uh, that's about the extent of it. It, it begins and ends there. Uh, and others have imbibed this 100-year marathon guff uh, and think that China is trying to rebuild uh, a subcelestial empire that you know it dominates from the center of a new tributary system. Uh, what's your take? Does China have anything uh, like a grand strategy? Chinese culture puts great emphasis on strategy, and in my experience, Chinese are better strategists than they are tacticians. Uh, they have a tendency to screw things up on the level of implementation. So I'm sure that there is uh, some sort of strategy. I don't think it is one of global domination. Uh, my own view is that China taking a larger role internationally is as much or more a product of the United States retreating and creating a vacuum as it is of any predatory Chinese instinct. Uh, the Belt and Road concept is a strategy. It envisages connecting all of the Eurasian landmass from Lisbon to Vladivostok and maybe from Archangelsk to Colombo uh, to create a single space in which countries can compete and cooperate. And I think the Chinese assumption is that China, as the largest and most dynamic society within that space, will naturally be preeminent. Uh, but I don't think preeminence per se is the Chinese objective. So um, I am left not far from where you began, Kaiser. That is to say, uh, there is an emphasis on building a moderately well-off society, one that enjoys the respect of not just neighbors, but the entire world, and one which is able to defend itself, remembering that China has a long history of failure to defend itself against foreign invaders. The emphasis on the South China Sea is, to my mind, very much defensive. Uh, it's also, of course, related to theories of sovereignty that China came late to, uh, but which uh, also infected Vietnam and Malaysia and the Philippines. Uh, Chaz, if I may go back a bit, could you perhaps offer what you think the outlines of an American strategy towards China might be, or if not, what the strategy should be, at least what such a strategy should not be? Well, if one is trying to be realistic in the current political atmosphere in which bilateralism has replaced multilateralism, uh, the options are quite limited. I think in an economic sense, uh, the United States benefited tremendously from the multilateral order 
that we created after World War II, and China is, rather than challenging that order, the child of it. China has risen to where it is by playing our game. I think we ought to have as a principal objective uh, encouraging the Chinese to continue to play our game. Uh, that is a multilateral game. But in Mr. Trump's America, that's a hard argument to make. Um, I think in the military sense, we have to accept that the 70-some years in which the United States replaced imperial Japanese power in East Asia is coming to an end. East Asian countries, whether they are Japan or the two parts of Korea or Vietnam or Indonesia or India, are all now relatively wealthy, growing, strong societies with competent militaries. Uh, those who think the Vietnamese are not competent should recall the experiences of those who have fought them. Uh, and the Japanese, when roused, are no slouches either. So I think the notion that somehow there is still a vacuum of the sort there was in 1945 that has to be filled by the United States is nonsense. Uh, the United States needs to do, as Mr. Obama said, some leading from behind. It is up to the countries in the region to provide, in the first instance, for their own defense and for the United States to act as an offshore balancer of China and other predatory powers in that context. Now, finally, I think there is no way around the fact that global issues, whether they are climate change or refugee problems or problems of law and order, the making of rules, the regulation of interactions between human beings all over the globe, all these things require U.S.-China cooperation. They can't be accomplished without it. So I think we need to pay more attention to integrating China respectfully into global governance. Whether all these things I've just said add up to a strategy or not, I'm not sure. Uh, but I know that at the moment we have no strategy, uh, we have no plan, uh, and we are in the process of producing a lot of negative change. Part of that negative change, specifically the, the tensions between China and the United States in recent years, it strikes me that anyone who's been paying attention is going to see that technology, anxiety specifically over China's growing technology prowess, is a major, if not the major source of, of tension right now. The trade war, to my mind, is not about steel or aluminum tariffs. It's not about low-end manufacturing. It's ultimately about made in China 2025. That maybe is as a proxy for for you know China's technology ambitions and its current abilities. It's clear from the 301 report. It's clear from a lot of the other things that we've said. Uh, a lot of American media coverage on China, as you've noticed, is focused on technologies that are being used for coercion and repression uh, in this you know social credit system, facial recognition, which is you know not just for law enforcement, but apparently is limiting the amount of toilet paper you can take at a public restroom now. Uh, there's, you know, this DNA gathering and other biometric stuff, which is, you know, pretty horrible that's happening in Xinjiang right now. Uh, and, you know, of course, some of our legislators are clamoring to limit the, the visas that are given to Chinese researchers and, and uh, graduate students in, in the STEM fields. It strikes me as particularly odd, though, because just three years ago,
ago, the narrative on Chinese tech was mostly pretty dismissive. We were just poo-pooing it as all derivative copycat stuff. And uh, is, is the U.S. right to be so anxious about Chinese technology, first of all? And if not, why are we reacting this way? A whole series of questions embedded in that. Um, I think, first of all, on the social credit system, which is horrifying to anyone of a liberal mindset, I think what China's trying to do is to replicate Lee Guan Yu's uh, success in Singapore. Uh, he took a population that could have very well fit uh, Sun Yat-sen's description of Chinese as a bucket of loose sand and turned them into moralistic, disciplined, relatively honest, uncorrupt, and wealthy society. And replicating this on the scale of uh, the Chinese mainland is very likely impossible. But using big data and the social credit system, uh, I think the Chinese want to replicate what Li Guan Yu did. So horrifying as it is, it may have an ultimately a Confucian purpose uh, that uh, works out all right. Leave that aside. Are we right to be concerned about the development of Chinese technology? Yes, uh, we are. We are looking at a society of roughly 1.4 billion people who, uh, by 2025, will have more scientific, technological engineering, and mathematics workers in their economy than the entire OECD countries combined. Not just the U.S., but Europe, Japan, Korea, Mexico, other members of the OECD. So one, one may question the quality of Chinese education. It's not perfect, although I think Chinese do extremely well on tests, international tests in these areas. But a workforce of that size, with the entrepreneurial drive that exists in China, is likely to be a formidable innovator. And we're beginning to see evidence of this. I think one of the more pathetic elements of the American complaint is a sort of racist assumption that any technology that China has must have been purloined from the West or the United States or American corporations or the U.S. Defense Department and could not have been invented uh, uh, in China. But that overlooks the fact that China was for millennia the technological leader on the planet. Um, and I expect it to be again. So now the question comes, why are we concerned about this? Why are we concerned about China? At root, I think, it is a status question. It's a pecking order issue. Uh, since about 1875, the United States has been the largest economy on the planet. We've actually lost that status in purchasing power parity terms to China. More tellingly, and if you look at industrial production, production of goods, manufacturing, China's probably 1.6 times uh, the size of the United States already. The currency translations are misleading. We have many more insurance bureaucrats, financial engineers, parasites of one sort or another on Wall Street uh, than China has yet produced, although I think they're catching up to us. This is not terribly useful if one is in a contest. Uh, that is, the financial engineering does not trump, uh, sorry to use that word, does not trump uh, real engineering. Uh, so the question of status, 
China's bigger economically. It's likely to become even more so. It is beginning to hold its own and invent some new uh, things, including in the military area, where it's been quite innovative. Uh, and um, uh, the only area where it really hasn't been innovative is political. But we are in the process of destroying many of our own advantages in that area. So perhaps that doesn't matter either. And I think we have, re we have reason to be concerned. Chas, you take an interesting position on the specific question of Made in China 2025 and on industrial policy more generally. Can you talk about what you think might be a more appropriate American response to China's industrial policy and that of other countries? Well, it's certainly not tariffs, which are irrelevant to that subject. Tariffs, quotas, restricting visas, uh, all are misaimed at that issue. On the issue of visas... I think the way in which technological innovation happens uh, involves collaboration between people. It does not involve what the Chinese call to uh, close the door and try to make, uh, make things yourself. So closing down access to the United States is not going to do anything except impoverish the United States intellectually and retard our own innovation and strength. The great strength of our country has always been its openness to foreigners and their ideas. We are net importers of brain power and always have been. And if we cease to be that, uh, we will suffer accordingly. So I don't think the answer is a wholesale onslaught on Made in China 2025. The issue is to look at specific aspects of that policy and see if we can negotiate reasonable understandings with the Chinese about how competition will be conducted. This is something uh, in which Europeans and Japanese and others, Indians, uh, all have a common interest with the United States. And the answer to the problems with Made in China 2025, therefore, has to be multilateral, not bilateral. And it has to recognize that nothing is going to stop uh, China from refashioning itself into a more innovative society. My sense is that this collective freakout that we're having about Chinese tech may have something to do with this uh, supposition that you described actually in the intro to your book, Interesting Times, uh, as having been taken to be axiomatic, uh, that technological innovation and success in market economies require full-blown freedom of speech. Those are really two axioms, and one of them has already been vexing the believers for some time. You know, this idea that China's success in market economics, despite its authoritarian single-party rule, uh, but but the other one about technology and free speech was still being touted until quite recently. You had Joe Biden going around and making these graduation speeches. You had Carly Fiorina doing the same thing and challenging people to show her any innovation. And it's like we were still clinging to this idea that you can't create a smartphone app unless you know the truth of what happened in Tiananmen in 1989. Uh, as I, I was once quoted as saying, uh, it seems to me that, that one of the last and most stubborn bastions of our exceptionalism is this idea that our freedom confers on us this special uh, and unique innovative capacity. Uh, do you think that does that make sense to you? It does make sense. Um, I think one of the problems we have in dealing with China is, to use a metaphor, it's, uh, it's like the theory that bumblebees can't fly uh, because... Obviously, they can't, and yet they do. <laughs> right, right. And so our problem in dealing with China is that it refutes our basic ideological assumptions, one of which is, as you've just stated it, that uh, 
Uh, freedom of speech is essential to economic progress and innovation. Uh, that, of course, is ahistorical in the extreme. Um, Nazi Germany was very innovative and didn't have a lot of freedom V2 for rock. its people. <laughs> um, and the Soviet Union was also very innovative, uh, as was Tsarist Russia, and neither of them paragons of freedom. Sure. So I think we're having trouble coming to grips with the shattering of a key uh, belief that we have. I think the fact that um, innovation occurs if there is freedom of scientific uh, communication is the point. And there the Chinese may be making a terrible mistake with their overregulation of the Internet. Yeah, I believe that. Um, and you know, in other ways they have advantages. For example, here we don't have freedom of speech or experimentation increasingly because of religious strictures. Think of stem cell research. That's right. Um, and uh, this does not affect the Chinese, so they have an advantage. But anybody who goes to China and does business now uh, and wants to connect and do research on the international level has a great problem uh, because the Internet is essentially impenetrable without all sorts of clandestine software, uh, which the Chinese are getting very good at shutting down. Uh, so unless you're in Shenzhen, where special rules apply, you're operating on a separate planet. And, and that's not going to help China. Sure, sure. Chaz, you don't mince words, and I really like that about you, and I guess it's quite unusual for a former ambassador. For instance, in the address you gave to the Committee of 100 earlier this year, you described the current administration as dominated by xenophobes and protectionists, as well as military officers and chicken hawk militarists. And you don't shrink from describing FBI Director Christopher Wray's testimony on the so-called whole of society threat China poses to America as demonizing China. Uh, and I particularly like this line. To appease American malaise and to deal with a wealthier and more powerful China, President Trump is experimenting with economic theories that appear to have been crowdsourced to right-wing talk radio and know-nothing TV. <laughs> but surely you recognize the increasingly bipartisan belief that China is in fact some kind of fundamental threat to the United States. Sinophobia arising from the populist right or among holdover cold warriors in the GOP is something fairly easy for me to understand. But what's your sense of why Democrats too have soured on China? Hasn't Chinese behavior also changed and in fact become much more assertive internationally and more illiberal domestically? I think it has become um, more assertive internationally, um, or I should say truculent internationally. Um, and it certainly is less liberal domestically. I have watched Chinese societies modernize. I think of Taiwan in particular. Um, and two steps forward and one step back is the common pattern. So I'm not convinced that the current illiberal trend is irreversible. Um, and uh, I think uh, there is reason to hope that a very large and increasingly influential middle class in China will... Uh, will push back. Uh, and uh, so I'm not giving up on the idea that China might evolve to be a place which has values that are more compatible with ours than, uh, than at present. We are told that every family is unhappy in its own way. Uh, every strain of politics in the United States 
as a different reason to invoke China as a negative model. China's human rights practices uh, are not good. Uh, some would say abominable. China's treatment of minorities, especially in Xinjiang, is uh, questionable, uh, not to say abominable. I think in the case of the Democratic Party and the uh, more leftward elements in American society, there are uh, reasons for concern. And don't forget that until recently, the American labor movement was more associated uh, with the Democratic Party and anti-trade um, and uh, prone to believe that uh, the loss of manufacturing jobs was attributable to China rather than to automation and other trends. Uh, so you have uh, political vested interests, you have ideology uh, coming together to push people against a positive view of, of China. And yet, when you look at the polls overall, they're not that bad. So I think we're talking about uh, Washington, the bubble atmosphere along the Potomac. We're talking about elites. And perhaps the most significant negative turn has been that of the business community. And there are many reasons for that. Um, uh, to some extent, uh, very uh, objectionable Chinese uh, commercial behavior uh, is a factor. Some notorious examples of violation of intellectual property rights, for example, Sinovel and AMSC, uh, a case uh, which is clear-cut, not driven by Chinese government policy, but very clearly predatory on the part of uh, Sinovel, a state-owned enterprise, this sort of thing, um, uh, the tendency of the Chinese uh, government uh, to use the party to mobilize measures against foreigners that are very difficult to define and pin down and respond to, these are all factors. But I think the main thing is that as security concerns have risen, the uh, American companies have faded into the background. They just don't like to get involved in national security discussions. So the defense that China once could count upon from American companies is no longer there. Fascinating. Uh, Jeremy mentioned Christopher Ray's testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee, and just last week he doubled down on that idea. What worries you more these days? China's so-called sharp power and its much-discussed influence operations, or the way America's responses to it seem to be shaping up, uh, which is more likely to do lasting damage to our civic fabric? Well, I think, um, frankly, we're going into another uh, one of our phases of uh, xenophobia, similar to the Palmer raids after World War I or the Japanese internment during World War II. And I'm, I'm very concerned uh, that uh, the Chinese-American community, which is uh, now very large, and which includes some family members of mine, uh, will be subjected to official prejudice and, and persecuted. And I think that would be enormously damaging to uh, our society. Uh, it's not unprecedented by any means, but it is damaging. Uh, on the issue of Chinese influence operations, the so-called sharp power, I think there's a great deal of confusion here. People confuse United Front work, which is directed at Chinese, not at foreigners, uh, intended to energize Chinese in favor of supporting the Chinese government, in favor of neutralizing opponents of that government, whether they're in China or abroad, 
with, uh, people confuse that, uh, with influence operations directed at non-Chinese or people with no Chinese ethnic connection. I think the Chinese are very inept at influence operations directed at non-Chinese. Yes. And they're not very active. They've gotten better. Um, I think publications like the China Daily do effectively tell the Chinese story, but uh, they're hardly subversive. So I think what uh, set this all off was, first of all, a, a press which is always looking for hooks on which to uh, hang anti-China stories. And second, the experience in Australia, where clearly Chinese students manipulated by United Front crossed some important lines in the Australian liberal democracy and have been brought up short. I don't see any evidence of this going on really in the United States. And I think the hysteria over Confucius Institutes, which are basically language teaching operations, should not be involved in academic research. Uh, and most universities, I think, won't allow them to be. I think this hysteria is totally misplaced. So um, I'm not as concerned about what the Chinese are doing uh, as I am about our own overreaction to imagined activities by the Chinese. On a related subject, Charles, do you think that China is now consciously exporting a, a political model and even if it is, is there something inherently wrong with it doing so? Well, there would be nothing wrong with it doing so. Um, it would then join the ranks of almost everyone else, including <laughs> notably the United States, which has been an apostle of armed evangelism for two centuries. But I don't think China is trying to export its model. I think socialism with Chinese characteristics does indeed have Chinese characteristics that are not replicable by non-Chinese. Uh, this is a civilization state, uh, less a nation state. And the model that it has uh, come to, to adopt uh, may be appealing in terms of the outcomes, the results that it delivers economically, but it is not adoptable by anyone else. And I know of no other country that has successfully adopted this model. And interestingly, the Chinese themselves, if you press them, uh, much prefer the model of Singapore to their own. <laughs> a, a guy once told me, he said, American and Chinese exceptionalism is both sort of, it, it's it's equally full of hubris. The Americans, of course, believe that their values and institutions are, are ultimately universal and should be adopted everywhere. The Chinese, again, equally arrogant, uh, think that their values and institutions are so utterly unique to China that they can't be adopted anywhere else. Well, they may be right about that, but in any event, uh, I think there is a sort of a Chinese hubris that asserts that Chinese are civilized and everyone else isn't, and uh, rather like raising children, you know, they're not human until you teach them to be. <laughs> uh, you said in your C-100 speech, the administration's indifference to China's anxieties is a reminder that the greatest vulnerabilities of any nation are the blind spots that its arrogance creates. Uh, this is I said that you know you you are an apostle of of uh, informed empathy, and I think this is this is what you're really talking about. Um, indifference to the other party's anxieties is, in my own way of thinking, a good part of what got us into this mess in the first place, to the downturn in relations that I, I would date to you know 2008 2009. I think that that um, the U.S. has failed pretty uniformly to exercise security dilemma sensibility. Uh, 
Can you tell us what the world at that time looked like when viewed out Beijing's window? In 2008, 2009. Yeah, 2008, 2009. I mean, this is, this is when the hardening, the new truculence sort sure. of begins, right? So what, what does the world look like? Uh, well, first, I think the notable, uh, most notable development in 2008 was the deflation of the American model. China had looked to the United States for answers to the issues of modernization uh, that it was trying to address. It wasn't, by the way, adopting the American model uh, because Deng Xiaoping's genius was eclecticism, whatever worked. And he issued some memorable phrases about white cats, black cats. As long as they can't catch rats, they're good cats. Uh, to to illustrate this, uh, and he popularized the "shi shi qiu shi," seek truth from facts slogan that actually Mao Zedong had uh, come up with, which was uh, a form of of pragmatism not focused on any model. Uh, in doing this, he was rejecting the earlier efforts of people like uh, Liu Shaoqi to impose a Soviet model uh, on China, and asserting the right of the Chinese to pick and choose. Uh, what would suit their own conditions uh, by looking, looking abroad. So I think, um, so suddenly in 2008, Wall Street uh, wizards contrived a financial collapse of a catastrophic nature from which we really haven't entirely recovered yet. And they discredited the American model. And the Chinese, looking around, seeing that they were doing rather well, and nobody else was doing terribly well, and that they mounted an effective response in terms of infrastructure programs and other spending to inflate the economy, uh, became quite cocksure about their own ability to lead the way. And I think that did uh, change the nature of Chinese interaction uh, with the world abroad. I've always wondered, you know, everybody in China for years was saying China would never practice hegemony, Hui Changba. So what does this mean? Uh, I think it's like the 19th century American assertion that we were so different we would never practice imperialism, even as we subjugated a continent and then extended manifest destiny across the Pacific, overthrew the monarchy in Hawaii, uh, took the Philippines, and became very much an imperial power. So it's possible to look at that a phrase, we will never practice hegemony, and imagine that Chairman Mao and others who uttered it were entirely sincere, uh, that they feared that future generations might indeed try to practice hegemony, uh, or that they were deceptive, and uh, they expected China in due course to emerge as a hegemon. But uh, Chinese arrogance manifestly has grown over the years, Chinese once had a reputation for modesty. I don't see that in the youth of China these days. What about in moving it forward a few more years to, uh, say, the early stirrings of the Arab Spring, maybe to 2009 after Ahmadinejad's re-election? Uh, there, was, there was a lot of worry about, you know, whispers of jasmine and all this. They, they clearly picked up on this idea that the United States never really had regarded the single-party state as legitimate. And I think there was the sense that while they didn't fear neocon-style regime change, they were 
pretty fearful of this sort of soft power subversion through more insidious means. You know, it is natural for a government, uh, a political party like the Chinese Communist Party that came to power in a revolution out of the barrel of a gun, uh, as it was said, to look back now so many decades ago, that is, was once the source of legitimacy, the mandate of heaven passed to the People's Republic of China in 1949, they thought. It's natural to look back and, and wonder what would happen if legitimacy were now challenged. And the various color revolutions that broke out and the much misnamed um, Arab Spring, actually, it wasn't at all what the Western press portrayed it as, I think set people back. Um, I remember in Taiwan in the 69, 71 period when I was living there and learned Taiwanese and talking to people. You know, I'd hear endless complaints about the Kuomintang, which was a Leninist party, and Taiwan was then certainly authoritarian, maybe even a totalitarian in some respects. And they would complain endlessly. And finally, I, as the dumb foreigner, because all foreigners are, are, are blessedly stupid and say ridiculous things, I said, well, you know, really, if you're so upset about them, why don't you get rid of them? And people would look at me with horror, and they'd say, well, you know, somebody's got to be in charge, and there isn't any alternative, and and if we tried to get rid of them, they'd probably kill us. And uh, anyway, life is getting so much better all the time. What's the problem? Go away, you dumb foreigner. I can't tell you how many conversations that parallel that I've had on the mainland. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so if legitimacy is dependent on economic performance, and 2008 comes along, and economic performance suddenly looks a little risky, and if mistakes are made that blow up the Chinese stock market and unnerve investors, and if uh, a corruption drive dries up a lot of private sector uh, interaction with local government, then I think the government begins to worry about legitimacy and its vulnerability. Uh, and uh, let's not forget, they have Tiananmen in their in their background. I think the students there were not worshipping democracy. They had other agendas, but they put on a pretty good show. And it's um, entirely possible that uh, Chinese Communist Party seniors who remember that yeah, it was uh, a were unnerved death. by it. It was a near-death experience for them as far as yeah, I remember. So, so um, nervousness, uh, this strange combination of hubris uh, and, uh, and insecurity, uh, affects uh, the Chinese government. Yeah, absolutely. You uh, identify another pillar of legitimacy in a, a talk that you gave, and I'd never heard it quite put this way, but uh, the international prestige is sort of the second pillar of it. And is, you, you raise this in the context of talking about how what Trump is doing right now is essentially going after the two pillars. One is is you know a growing prosperity, and the trade war threatens this. And then, yeah, international prestige is, is the other, uh, and you sort of say this by way of understanding why it is that, that uh, China is experiencing this kind of an anxiety. Uh, expand on that a little bit. How is Beijing today likely to perceive what the U.S. is doing? Well, at least uh, Mr. Trump is not uh, uh, calling out uh, Xi Jinping with uh, 
nicknames and insults. Right. And yet, I would say that prestige, international prestige, is directly related to the concept of face. What, what is face? Face is confidence in the respect of those whom you respect. Um, it's self-esteem acquired by the esteem of others. It's dignity. It's standing. It's status. Um, oh, and it sounds uniquely Chinese at it's all. It's not uniquely Chinese, although it probably the expression of it in China is a little different from it is in other cultures. So prestige is two things. It is the shadow that power casts beyond your borders, and it's also face. It's the respect that foreigners show for you. And I think a major objective of the Chinese state, I won't call it a strategy, but a major objective is to ensure that China is respected. And to the extent that indifference to Chinese interests and views is now deeply embedded in American policy, it is a challenge in that context, as well as in the practical way. Charles, lately, <clears throat> amongst American China watcher types, there has been a growing chorus calling for a complete rethink of the idea of engagement. When Kaiser spoke to Kurt Campbell not too long ago for our show, uh, Kurt walked it back a bit, insisting that he still wants engagement. Uh, but, you know, from reading uh, the foreign policy piece he co-authored, I think he's pretty clear about his belief that engagement does need to be revisited. Uh, Jim Mann's book, The China Fantasy, was perhaps the progenitor of this attitude and, you know, has sort of come into favor in the last few years, even amongst people who previously did not like his ideas. How would you answer people who are calling the very idea of engagement into question. Do you think it's been fair how critics of engagement have characterized the expectations set by its proponents? I mean, were you actually expecting that the Nixon opening or any other engagement was going to produce a plural open democracy, um, you know, in a short space of time in China? There was no such expectation. There is never any such policy with the exception of the first two years of the Clinton administration when everything was held hostage to human rights. Uh, and that policy failed, was abandoned, and never picked up again. Uh, but I would say deeply embedded in the American psyche and in interaction with China over the course of centuries has been a desire to change China. You will recall, I don't na remember the name of the senator, uh, who in Shanghai famously gave a toast in which he said, among other things, and with God's help, we will lift Shanghai up, ever up, until it is just like Kansas City. <laughs> um, this is a kind of American uh, evangelism that is very deeply embedded in our approach to China. And many people over the years wished that it had been taken into policy. It wasn't. In fact, the Shanghai Communique, which is the keystone document of the new U.S.-China relationship, says explicitly uh, that we have different socioeconomic systems, um, and notwithstanding that, we will cooperate, meaning we will not pursue ideological warfare anymore. Uh, so I think when people uh, look back at U.S. policy, they read their own unrealistic expectations into past policy, they also are looking for ways 
of criticizing the U.S.-China relationship, their predecessors, uh, China itself, and China's failure to do anything but remain Chinese, uh, <laughs> God help us, is uh, deeply disturbing to them. Uh, so uh, I think that what we have going on here is a lot of revisionism with very little basis in history. Fantastic. Let's talk about the U.S. posture toward the Belt and Road Initiative. Do you think it's well understood here in, in D.C. that it's being taken seriously enough? I mean, because my sense is that among some, there's this sort of hope that if we don't think about it, it's just going to go away. Uh, among others, there's this kind of dismissive sneering or, or cheering every time you read about a project that seems to stumble and then for some folks, there's this kind of belief that it's this existential threat. Uh, what I don't see are many, even outside the Trump orbit, who are advocating for uh, some form of American participation in it, a co-optation of it, uh, that we might shape and maybe improve it. Well, what's your take on this? American companies certainly want to participate in it because they like money. Uh, one of the problems the United States has in dealing with the Belt and Road uh, proposals is it's not really a project. It's a broad grant strategy, really, as I said earlier. Um, one of the problems we have in dealing with it is we have no money. Uh, we are spending all our money on a uh, military that loses every war it gets into. Uh, and uh, that's why we have decaying infrastructure at home, uh, whether it's human or physical. Uh, we're not investing in anything at home and we're not investing abroad and we're therefore not in a position to complement or counter the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. There's a second problem. This is an economic strategy. It is a strategy based on connectivity. It is a strategy based on offering money for projects that have to pass the usual sort of due diligence to succeed. And um, our view of it is primarily military, which is irrelevant. Uh, so a final uh, comment on this is that, of course, projects that are listed under the Belt and Road rubric fail sometimes. I've been in business. Nine times out of ten, you fail. You know, you, you, if you don't take risks, you don't get results. And uh, the Chinese are learning to be better at due diligence on projects. I think in this regard, one of the most um, interesting things is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor Project, or projects. Uh, frankly, if anyone can make a success out of anything in Pakistan, uh, they've done extremely well. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, I think the Chinese have gone into this uh, very bravely. Uh, I'm not sure how they'll come out. Um, uh, but I would expect some of those projects to fail. And um, I would expect uh, to see in Pakistan, as in other places, nationalist uh, backlash. Um, Sri Lanka, uh, Hambantota, the famous port, was a project of the previous president who was a dictator. Um, it was a, his hometown. Um, it didn't make any sense. Uh, he basically bamboozled the Chinese into doing it. Um, China has about 10% of Sri Lanka's debt. The rest of it is raised on the market or from Japan or, or other countries. And uh, this nonsense about uh, the Chinese deliberately pushing Sri Lanka into debt so that China merchant steamships could uh, take over Hambantota 
It's, it's, it's frankly ridiculous. The Chinese may be good at strategy, but they're not that good. <laughs> so would you completely reject this notion that I, I think is becoming, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hearing more and more that debt trap diplomacy is, in fact, a core strategy and that the end game is for China to have not only a string of pearls, but a series of ports around the world uh, that ultimately can be used for military purposes. Um, do you think this is just a, a, a paranoid fantasy? Uh, the string of pearls was invented by Booz ha Allen Hamilton, not the Chinese. Um, and I think this is, again, a Beltway bandit theory of Chinese behavior. Um, I think one thing that's very interesting about what the Chinese do um, uh, that does snap together military and economic things is take a look at Djibouti. You know, in the late 19th century, before oil came in, countries built coaling stations. Cameron Bay, for example, was where the Russian Navy refueled before it went up to be destroyed by Japan in the, in the Tsushima Strait. So these were just depots. What the Chinese have done is actually very intelligent. They have built a hinterland. So Djibouti has now become the major entrepot for trade with a rapidly developing Ethiopia. 100 million people in Ethiopia, a lot of Chinese investment, a lot of light industry developing, all of it tied to a Chinese railroad that goes down to Djibouti. Uh, so I think the Chinese have been careful, even where they have had some military objective, to ensure that it was economically viable. Many years ago, I had a discussion with the then Chinese Minister of Defense about China's space program. And at one point I asked him, this was after... Uh, the first uh, Taikonauts had gone up. Uh, I asked him, how much have you spent on space? And he said the equivalent, the equivalent in dollars cumulatively was $3 billion, nothing. And I said, well, how did you do that? And he said, well, at every point, we have tried to make money. <laughs> so uh, we have not done things that wouldn't uh, net out in the lowest possible losses or the greatest possible gains. And when you look at the Chinese space program, it, it sort of, to me, it epitomizes uh, long-term Chinese mentality. Uh, it's all basically modeled on a Princeton professor, Gerard O'Neill's theories uh, from the 1970s. That is, you build a colony on the moon, you use rail guns to fire ore from the moon into the Lagrange points, where gravity is equalized, you refine that ore, you build habitats, factories, and you build solar power stations that can microwave power back to Earth. You mine asteroids uh, to support all this, and you move your polluting industries and those that require either a vacuum or zero gravity into space. This is exactly what the Chinese plan is, and it's a 50-year program. It is impressive that they can think on that timescale, I'd also say that um, a hell of a lot can go wrong with a program that takes 50 years to carry out. So whether they'll succeed in this regard or not is an open question. Let us now turn to Taiwan. Um, you, you have spent a number of years in Taiwan. You've written extensively on Taiwan and especially on the 1995 to 96 Taiwan Strait crisis that led to a face-off uh, in March of 1996. 
the Trump administration has really sought to bring Taiwan back into play. In fact, you know, the famous phone call was one of the first China-related actions that Donald Trump did after winning the election. Many have suggested that whatever lessons were learned from 1996 may have just been cavalierly tossed out of the window. Uh, what's different now, if anything? Uh, and what is your sense of how cross-straits relations are evolving? Well, quite a number of things are different, of course. Uh, there is a TPP government in charge in Taipei, uh, which aspires to independence, even if it's cautious about openly pursuing that goal. Taiwan has learned a, a series of lessons over the decades. It doesn't see a military solution to its autonomy. It understands that there must be a political understanding of some sort with the mainland that Taiwan, like Cuba, cannot prosper without a relationship with the large continent just off its shores. Uh, so all this is understood. Um, and Taiwan is really not pushing now uh, for weapons sales from the United States. They know their limitations. They are doing some interesting things at long last indigenously, trying to acquire submarines, for example, uh, trying to design a new uh, generation of aircraft. There's no reason they can't. If Sweden can do it, they can too. But uh, they're not pushing so much on the United States. What's new is that the Trump administration is inhabited by a number of people who never really came to grips with normalization, who disliked the break in diplomatic relations with Taipei, who support Taiwan for either ideological reasons because of its liberal democratic character or uh, because of some sort of strategic concept of Taiwan as a break on Chinese access to uh, the oceans, a mistake, I believe. And uh, so it's really Americans who are pushing. Uh, the military-industrial complex, of course, likes the arms sales. Uh, there are ideologues in the Senate and the House uh, who uh, just like to stick it to Beijing. There's a sense on the part of Americans, some of them, that, uh, you know, we're having to defer to China and this is humiliating. Uh, and therefore, we need to push back. Uh, I think that's a bit ridiculous. But uh, there you have it. Uh, so I don't know that you can compare the current moment with uh, previous ones. A final comment. Uh, the most endearing characteristic of Americans is our amnesia. We never remember anything. Every day is a new day. Uh, people cite the Taiwan Relations Act. They've never read it. Uh, they, I happen to know because I did the legal work that became it. They cite the three communiques. They haven't a clue what they have in them or what commitments the United States has made. And so we're dealing with a realm of uh, political fantasy rather than accurate memory and diplomacy. Uh, the Trump administration has taken this sort of uh, delusional reasoning process to a new height. It's often said that how Taiwan plays out depends very much on how Hong Kong plays out. And right now, things aren't looking very promising, even four years after the umbrella movement. Uh, what went wrong with Hong Kong? Uh, and how do you think Beijing could better manage that relationship? And what role, if any, does the U.S. have to play? I think several things have gone not right with Hong Kong. Uh, the first is, of course, Hong Kong was the greatest collateral damage of uh, the June 4th Tiananmen incident. There had been an understanding between the British negotiating team on the handover in 1997 and the Chinese team 
that the British, not having given democracy to Hong Kong, although they had more than a century to do so, would allow the Chinese to confer democracy on Hong Kong. And if you read the agreement, that's embedded in there, in effect, implicitly. Um, after Tiananmen um, and a change on the British side, um, uh, the British uh, basically jumped the gun and uh, tried to democratize Hong Kong on the eve of the turnover. The result was, to you, the Chinese say, phrase is gang ren zhi gang, but what this really means is fat cats rule Hong Kong. The Chinese oligarchy in uh, Hong Kong is in charge. Now, that Chinese oligarchy for years engaged in preemptive capitulation to Beijing. They didn't ask Beijing what it wanted them to do. They surmised what Beijing would want them to do and then did it. So gradually they yielded autonomy of decision-making. And finally, of course, a generation arose in Hong Kong which challenged the basic foundations of Chinese unity, the umbrella movement, um, the people openly calling for Hong Kong independence because of dislike of mainlanders and the mainland, because of a Cantonese identity rather than a Mandarin one, and many other reasons. All of this unnerved the central government. It overreacted. And uh, so now we have a situation in which Hong Kong, which had been a model of uh, one country, two systems, or two means more than one, not just two, mm-hmm. um, one country, many systems, has, um, has ceased to serve as an effective lure for Taiwan uh, to engage the mainland in some sort of accommodation. It's ended up showing some of the risks of doing so rather than the attractions. Is there a way back from this? Well, I think some part of it uh, is a bit of greater realism on the part of people in Hong Kong. Uh, I'm sorry to say that those who were prominent in the demonstrations uh, will not be able to participate in Hong Kong's future life. The Chinese government will make sure that's the case, nor will they be able to do what people in Hong Kong do to become prosperous, which is to uh, work with the mainland, and they'll probably have to emigrate. And I think that lesson will sink in. Chinese are very pragmatic, whether they're in Hong Kong or elsewhere. There's a reason that civilization has lasted as long as it has. So I think there will be some movement toward accommodation. And providing the parameters of uh, discussion are mutually understood and there's confidence, Hong Kong can become more democratic. It's just uh, it's sort of like Iran. You know, you can't question Islam. Uh, you can't question Chinese unity. If you do, you're ruled uh, out of order. If you don't, uh, then you have the freedom to say lots of things. So these days I've had to dig pretty deep into my reserves of optimism to find any hope for meaningful improvement in, in the U.S.-China relationship. Um, many things that Xi Jinping has done, like you know the removal of term limits, have definitely magnified the gap between our political culture and our values and, and China's and has very much amplified the sort of China threat narrative in the popular mind uh, and among elites here in D.C. Re-education camps in Xinjiang, very nasty stuff, stepped-up censorship, more ideological stridency from Beijing. Uh, It's all making it harder to make the case for context and for nuance. Uh, And then, of course, there's our own administration here. Uh, But you, you seem to believe that this, too, will pass. This is the title of your talk. Where do you draw on for what? What do you draw on? 
where do you dig for for your optimism these days? Well, I think historically, optimism has been justified. When the U.S. opened its relationship with China, um, our expectation was that we might be able to change Chinese external behavior. We had no expectation that China itself would modify its system. Uh, and indeed, that happened. Uh, China joined the world. China joined the containment of the Soviet Union. And in the course of time, uh, China decided to change itself. Uh, Deng Xiaoping invoked the United States in order to undo the worst elements of Maoism, demaoify, if you will, China. And that worked. Uh, and so I've seen uh, decades now, 40 years anyway, maybe 50, in which China has continually improved. Sometimes it slipped back a bit, uh, but the general trend has been clear. So I'm not going to say that the current developments, which you mentioned, all of which are very disturbing, mean that that basic trend line has been broken. I think there are forces in China. There are There is a Chinese population that now has passports, that travels, that's much more curious and well-informed about the outside world. Um, there is uh, a great deal more prosperity and individual choice in China. And uh, there's pride um, in China. And I think some Chinese may, in fact, find some of the developments you mentioned, um, dis not just dispiriting, uh, but, um, uh, but almost insulting. Mm. So I am of the mind that uh, irrational behavior sooner or later runs into reality and has to be corrected. Uh, so I, I think some of what is happening in China now is excessive. Uh, some of it's true to type. The security forces have always been the ugly part of the Chinese uh, state. Yes. And uh, that hasn't changed. And they've also been prone to excess. I used to say when I would meet starry-eyed young people from Europe mainly who came to China to see the revolution, uh, that if given six months the public security ministry or the, the ministry of state security now, the Diao Cha Bu in the past, uh, would surely correct them, and <laughs> and they would uh, feel very cynical and disillusioned with China. Um, so I guess my view of this question is, uh, you, in order to be disillusioned, you have to have illusions. Uh, I think we shouldn't have illusions about China. It's a very different place, different values, moving in its own pace and in its own way, but I don't think it's exempt from the basic socioeconomic forces that have shaped the rest of human society. Americans just seem so prone to that that pattern of, of setting up unrealistic expectations only to have them dashed and then just to feel almost like a, a jilted lover afterward. I mean, it's... There's it's a pendulum movement. Um, I've seen it on multiple occasions. When, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, when I was a kid in the 1950s, China was the land of the blue ants, uh, not not inhabited by human beings. In the 1960s, it was this crazy cultural revolution place that was having a national nervous breakdown. In the 1970s, conservatives discovered that kids in China sat up straight and at their desks and had short hair and were in every respect admirable little reactionaries. And in the 80s, 
we went along, you know, China was changing and was going to become just like us. And bang, 89, we discovered, no, that wasn't the case. So I've seen us swing from one illusion negative to another illusion positive and back again. Uh, I'm hoping we will now come up with a more balanced view. Chaz, before we wrap up this first part of our conversation, I'd like to ask if you could recommend any books or essays or articles that you've read in recent years on China that you think are getting things essentially right? Because in the course of this conversation, we have already discussed a lot of things that people are getting wrong. You know, that's a very difficult question because, uh, to be honest, a great part of the American academic community uh, which is uh, infected with liberal ideology, shares some of the uh, unrealistic expectations that we've been discussing. And I don't see many books uh, that reflect a really accurate, as uh, Kaiser said, informed empathy about, about, about China. So I'm sort of at a loss. You can, of course, read my book, which is called Interesting Times. And I have. China, America, and the balance, shifting balance of prestige. And that's fairly recent uh, and I think fairly realistic. Uh, Ambassador Freeman, I, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and with your insights. Uh, to our listeners, um, we will do recommendations at the end of the next part of this podcast. But in the meantime, while you are waiting for that one to drop, I'd highly recommend that you, you check out something I discovered while poking around on Ambassador Freeman's website. It's his amazing oral history, an interview that he'd done in 1995 with Charles Stuart Kennedy as part of his Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training Foreign Affairs Oral History Project. It's, it's over 560 pages, I think. Uh, and Kennedy himself is just a terrific interviewer. Uh, we'll make sure to put up a link to that. But if you can't be bothered to look at the show notes, uh, you can just Google Charles Stuart Kennedy and uh, Chaz Freeman and oral history, and you will find it. Uh, I wish I'd found it with more time to read you know, the entire thing before coming here today. Uh, so tune in next week as we continue our conversation with Ambassador Chaz Freeman. To be continued. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and, and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. We love hearing from you, and you can follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News. Make sure to check out some of the other podcasts in the ever-expanding Seneca network, including our latest show, New Voices, with Alice Xin Liu and Joanna Chu on women in the world of letters in China. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.